you know, I always wish we had a thicker pulpit because, you know, it would kind of divert your eyes from my shaking knees. Um, but, you know, we don't, so I'm going to try to walk around a little bit to kind of mask what's going on downstairs, okay? Um, so this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And I want to start off with a story from my childhood. Now, one of my, my dad's favorite activities to do when I was growing up was hunting. He loved to hunt. And I remember I, that was one of my favorite things to do with him, especially when I was real little. We would go to our, our family property, and we would climb up in that tree stand, and we would wait. And I remember this one time, I remember this one day, where this 12-point buck just walked out in front of us. And, you know, if you're the hunter, the way you start getting excited is you, you kind of freeze. Um, you kind of start getting a little sweaty. You kind of start shaking a little bit. And the only way the hunter can release his excitement is when that scope is on that deer and he pulls the trigger. Right? But what about the kid? The way the kid releases his excitement is by talking. And I remember I was down at my dad's feet. And he, you know, deer comes out and my first thought was like, Dad, do you see that deer? Do you see that? Do you see? Are you going to shoot it or are you just going to keep sitting here? And my dad said so lovingly, shut your mouth. It was so loving. I mean, words, words of wisdom, shut your mouth. And so I shut my mouth as fast as I can. But as a kid, I'm not talking, so then I revert to shaking. I'm just shaking with excitement, waiting for those magical words that my dad's about to say. He says, get ready. And for a kid, that means to cover your ears and get ready for the shot. And so I'm waiting there, and I see the barrel go over my head, and I'm waiting. And then, bang, he hits that 12-point, and it falls straight to the ground. And I'm so excited. I can finally start talking now. But I'm so excited that I immediately start climbing down the tree stand. And he's like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. But I'm going fast, so fast that I think I'm at the bottom. I let go, and I'm still like four steps up. And so I, I hit the ground. But don't worry, I'm fine. I got adrenaline pumping in these veins. And so I run over to this deer. I'm about to touch it, man. I'm about to feel the warmth. And as I get there, this deer has a resurrection right before my eyes. <laughs> I thought this deer was dead, but this deer just got resurrected. Miracles do happen. That's right. And this, this deer jumped up, did a little kick, and ran off all before my dad even turned around getting down the getting down the ladder. And my dad's like, what just happened? I said, Dad, the deer was not dead. <laughs> the deer ran off. And so we spent the next 30 minutes looking for the deer. We could not find it. And I remember on the four-wheeler driving back to the camp house, you know, I'm just like, you know, I'm, in my innocence, I'm like, Dad, why did that deer run away? And my dad very lovingly, I mean, you can... You can kind of sense the tone of his voice. He says, well, son, because the deer didn't want to die. And that's why this morning I want to introduce you to the subject, worship that keeps a sacrifice down. Or another way of looking at it is the type of worship that keeps a sacrifice on the altar. So let's read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we, our prayer today, our only prayer, is that we would see you high and lifted up. Lord, this whole week I've prayed, Father, that you would, you would calm my nerves. And, you know, Lord, let me not stutter. But, Lord, if that brings you glory, then leave it there. Because, Father, we just want to see your glory. Father, we want to see how we can offer our lives on the altar. And, Father, we, our ears are open for your spirit to teach us. Father, I pray this in, in your name. Amen. Amen. So as you see, Paul starts out with therefore. Now, we, you know, we've been going through the book of Joshua, and, but here we're just kinda, we kind of open up right into the middle of an entire letter. See, the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul lays out to us, this is what we believe. So we're going to do a fast little retrack looking at what we believe, what Paul lays out for us to believe. In Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us that we are justified through faith, and we see that Jesus is our propitiation. In Romans chapter 4, we are told that through faith we have this imputed righteousness that we receive through Christ. In Romans 5, we have the hope of future glory. In Romans chapter 6, we've been crucified with Christ. Sin's dominion is abolished, and we no long, we're no longer slaves, but we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of the Son. In Romans chapter 7, we see who will save us wretched people. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who saves us. In Romans chapter 8, we see that in Christ we have been given the Holy Spirit to walk with. And who is right now within the believers conforming us to look like the Son. And we find out also in Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Romans chapter 9, we see that God has chosen to reveal His grace to us who have done nothing to earn it. In Romans chapter 10, we see that we are no longer under the law, but we are firmly under grace. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul tells the church that God's call is irrevocable. His purpose will be completed. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, Paul is telling us this is what we believe. But in Romans chapter 12, he switches from this is what we believe, so this is how we live out what we believe. And so, what type of worship keeps the sacrifice on the altar? Well, I think the first thing we see is worship that keeps the sacrifice on the altar. It's worship that is captivated by the glory of God. It's worship that's captivated by the glory of God. Look at what Paul writes in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. I mean, Paul just gave the church the gospel. In Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, Paul laid out what the gospel is. That mankind is so extremely wicked that we have, we have rejected the revelation of God and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is to be praised. But even while we were sinners... God sent His Son as a propitiation on the cross. His Son, Jesus, was killed. But the Father raised Him from the dead and gave Him the name above every other name. And not only that, but by faith in that, we have this righteousness that's not our own, but that is given to us by the Son. 
And that not only, not only that, but also that through Christ, we, the believers, are kept until that future glory. This is what Paul just lays out for us. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. You know, one of the biggest things in the Christian life is looking back. We are told over and over again to look back. We've been going through Joshua. They set up those stones so that when the kids would say, what is this? The, the parents could say, this was what God did for us. And so I want to ask you, what are some spiritual markers in your life that when you look back, you can see the mercies of God? Because not only are the mercies of God that which is found, what Paul lays out in Romans 1 through 11, but did you know that you also play a part in the mercies of God? You know, Cheney was talking about the family in India who she got to share the gospel with. I mean, our prayer should be that God saves her. And here's the thing, you know, if God saves her, you know, that, that family will one day be able to look back over their lives, will be able to look back and say, there was this American girl who came to us and who shared the gospel with them. And the thing is, is really they're not going to be seeing Cheney. They're going to be seeing the mercies of God. You know, me and Savannah have spent the last, um, you know, last two months sharing the gospel with these Mormon missionaries, and man, we have cried, hoping and praying that God would would save them. And uh, we haven't seen any of that, but that doesn't mean that God can't do it, because God can do it, because you can look at you and me and see that God can do it. And so our prayer is that in the future God would save them, and our prayer is that when they are in Utah, wherever they are, justified by Christ. They will have the opportunity to look back and say, man, there's this redneck couple from Bonifay, Florida that fed us, that asked us hard questions. But what we see is we see the mercies of God. See the mercies of God. I mean, in whose lives are you revealing the mercies of God to? Because you are revealing something. You are either revealing the mercies of God or you're just a hypocrite. In whose lives are you revealing the mercies of God to? You know what worshipers do when they're captivated by the glory of God? They will do whatever the Lord asks of them. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you have a problem obeying God, it's because you have a problem loving God. And if you have a problem loving God, it's because the glory of God has not captured your very heart. So the first thing, what, what type of worship keeps you and me on the altar before God. It's worship, that is, it's worship that is captivated by the glory of God. It's when we are so captivated by God's beauty that we remain in His service. But the other thing we see about what type of worship keeps the sacrifice down is also worship that requires a costly offering. It's worship that costs. It's worship that requires a costly offering. Look with me in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. See, Paul, do you know what is the most precious thing to you? Do you know the one thing that we love more than anything else? It's our very own lives. I mean, think about it. Everything you do within a day, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, everything that you're, you're doing that day is making sure you don't end up dead, right? Right? I mean, that's a very 
I mean, I'm very simplifying it, but that's really what it is. I mean, you, you drive your car hoping you don't wreck. You go to work hoping that accident doesn't happen. You go to sleep hoping that you wake up the next morning. I mean, that is the most precious thing to us. But that is exactly the thing that God wants from us. He wants that which is most precious to us. You know, worship that matters to us is worship that costs us. Worship that matters to us is worship that costs us. You know, think back to 2 Samuel 24. Whenever David, you know, David goes and he does this census, right? And he does it wickedly to the point where the Lord says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring a plague on you. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring my wrath against you. And so after the wrath kind of happens, the prophets go to David and says, David, the way that you can bring, the way that you can negate this or eliminate it is by going to Aruna, buying the threshing floor, and setting up a sacrifice there. And as David goes to Aruna, Aruna comes out and says, My king, here is, here's the floor. You don't pay nothing. Here's the sacrifice. You don't pay nothing. Here's all the supplies. But look at what David says in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. However, the king said to Aruna, No, I will, not. I will certainly buy it from you for a price. For I will, not, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Does your worship cost you something? Because if, it, if your worship doesn't cost you anything, then it's not worship. But look at this. Look with me. Not only is worship, you know, it's worship that, that requires a costly offering, but look at the cost. The first thing is the cost is countercultural. The cost is countercultural. Verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now, to understand this, you've got to know what's going on. So the language that Paul is using here, a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice is an oxymoron. How can you be a sacrifice but also be living? And this is the same question that the church at Rome is asking. I mean, there's a countercultural idea happening right now. And here's why it's countercultural. Because the terms, the language that Paul uses was only used when dealing with the cults. The ancient Roman cults would be the only ones who would use, really use the terms, offer your bodies. Because the ancient Roman cults would go and they would offer bodies, but these bodies would not be living. You know what I mean? They would be D-E-A-D. They'd be dead. And so as the, the, Roman, the Roman Gentile Christians are hearing this, they're thinking, I mean, I can just imagine. Imagine with me. Paul writes this letter, and he's using words that the, that the cults, the ones that you look down on as heretics are using. Imagine. I can just think of some of them saying, man, my mama told me not to join this religion because she said it was a cult. My mama told me not to do this. Because she said that this was a cult. I mean, do, do, you, do you see the internal pressures going on here? I mean, these Christians are hearing these terms and their minds is not going to Christ, but it's going to all of these different cults. But not only is it a problem for the Gentiles, it's also a problem for the Jews. Because when Paul says, offer your bodies as a sacrifice, you know what the Jews are thinking? They're thinking, I thought we didn't have to offer sacrifices anymore. I thought we didn't have to do temple worship anymore. 
Paul, what do you mean we have to offer a sacrifice? I thought you said that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all of us. I mean, it's countercultural. You see, Paul is letting them know that, that as Christians, you and me don't offer like the cults do. We don't offer like the Jews do because they offer dead sacrifices because they themselves are enslaved to the process. But you and me offer living sacrifices freely because we have been captured by the glory of God. You know, the glory of God, the mercies of God is the diving board into Christian living. It is the diving board into the way you and me live and the way you and me interact with one another. See, it's countercultural. And here's, here's the thing. Is your worship countercultural? Is your wor- worship different than those from Bonifay or wherever else? You know, how is your worship? Because Paul's laying out that our worship should look so radically different than from the way the cults do it and the way the Jews do it. Because we worship someone who is living. We worship a God that is worthy of our worship. Is your worship countercultural? Does your worship look different than everyone else? So not only is the cost countercultural, but it's all-consuming. The cost is all-consuming. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I mean, not only is it countercultural, but it wants all of us. When Paul says, offer your bodies, he's not talking about just your physical bodies. I mean, he's talking about everything that makes Jerry Newman, Jerry Newman, God wants it. Everything that makes Jamie, Jamie, God wants it. He wants everything. He doesn't want what is convenient from us. He wants everything. The cost is all-consuming. But look at the cost. The first thing we see is the cost is rational. The cost is rational. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, raise your hand if your Bible says spiritual service of worship. Does your Bible say that? You got a couple. Now, raise your hand if your Bible says something different. What does your Bible say? Yeah. Yeah. So some translations say spiritual service of worship. Others will translate it rational. And the reason why is the word is logikos, and most scholars are kind of split right down the middle. Do we translate it spiritual or do we translate it rational? And I think it's both. And here's why. It is rational to worship God. You know, one way of saying this is to offer your entire beings to God because this is the only logical way to worship. It's the only logical way to worship. Let me ask this. You know, Grace Church is a sending church. We love sending missionaries. We love receiving missionaries. But have you ever thought, 
what logical reason would it be for missionaries to uproot their entire families from the comforts of their homes and their societies and move to some of these places? The one I think about is Adoniram Judson. Why would Adoniram Judson move his family to Burma while being there, he lost three wives, three kids, he was imprisoned, beaten, and when he died, he only had a handful of converts. You know, why, you know, Cheney went to India. Why would she leave, you know, why would she leave, give up her summer when she could be making money because college is coming, the payment for college is coming. Why would she leave and go there? Well, it's because when you've been capped, captured by the glory of God, the only logical thing for you to do is to offer your lives up to his service. You know, the reason that missionaries go to the field is because they've been so captured by the glory of God that it is the only logical thing for them to do. And the thing is, is what is it... Lo- so, I'm not saying everyone, not everyone is going to be a missionary. But what is the logical way for you to worship? Because Paul lays out the logical way to worship, but, you know, there are, there are plenty of illogical ways to worship. You know, one illogical way to worship is to be saved by the mercies of God brought into his church, but then deny the church because you don't feel like you need them. That is illogical. That's what the apostles call stupid. It's illogical to be saved and gathered to God's people, but then reject God's people because you don't need them. You know what else is illogical? It's illogical to be saved by the mercies of God and then to live like hell because grace abounds. That is illogical worship. See, worship that keeps a sacrifice on the altar is rational worship. But not only is it rational, it's also devotional, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's rational. When God began a work within you, He started in the spiritual and it manifested itself in the physical. I mean, are you different now than before you got saved? You know, and here's the thing. It is so easy. The flesh is so good at masquerading as a worshiper of God. It's really easy when they're amongst true worshipers of God. It's very easy for the flesh to pretend to be a worshiper of God. But here's the thing. The flesh can't pretend forever. And so, is your worship, and I don't want, I don't want to say public worship, because again, like I said, the flesh is very good, but is your private worship logical or illogical? Is the worship you do at your house logical or is it illogical? So worship that keeps the sacrifice on the altar. First, it's worship that is captivated by the glory of God. The next thing we see is it's, it's, it's worship that requires a costly offering. And now, it's worship that transfigures, not configures. It's worship that transfigures, not configures. Look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Did you know that every time we worship God, we should leave just a little bit differently? Every time we worship God, we should leave just a little bit more transformed than when we came in. And the reason why is because when we come in contact with the Spirit of God, there is a change that happens in yours and mine life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. This is the same word used in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's only used three times. The word metamorpho is only used three times. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. This is the word where we get our word for metamorphosis. And you know, the, the usual picture that comes to my mind is when a cute little caterpillar goes into the cocoon and he comes out a beautiful butterfly. You know, I'm thinking about that, that Disney movie. You know, I'm a beautiful butterfly, you know. That's what I'm thinking. But, you know, here's the thing. When that change happens, guess what? That caterpillar knows that it's no longer a caterpillar. It knows that it is something different. You know, it doesn't walk everywhere. I mean, it begins to fly because there's a change that happens. But so many times, and I use myself as an example, so many times, you know, the Spirit is transforming me, but so many times I like to act like I was before I was transformed. See, it's worship that configures and not transfigures. And look at this. This is how it's done. It's done by an exterior force. It's done by an exterior force. Verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Now, both of these verbs, do not be conformed and be transformed, are imperatives. They're commands, but at the same time, they're passive. And so what that means is that means that that is not something the subject, i.e. you and me, are doing, but that is something that's being done to us. It's something that's being done to us. And here, here's the image I think of. Raise your hand if you like going to the beach. I'm not going to raise my hand. I hate it. Now, raise your hand if you hate the beach. Man, I, I, I hate the beach. You know, this is how much I hate the beach. I hate the beach so much that it almost ruined my proposal. Because, you know, one day, you know, I'm, I'm ready to get married, ready to propose. I walk with Savannah. I'm like, hey, you want to go to the beach? And, you know, she, I mean, she played along. You know, she did the crying. Oh, my God, we're married and all this stuff. But afterwards, she's like, I knew it was coming because you hate the beach. <laughs> you know? But she, she'll always say, man, let's go to the beach. I just want to relax. There is no relaxing at the beach. Everything you do at the beach is work. I mean, it takes work to take all those coolers and all those shares from your car to where you're going to be at, right? It takes work to walk through that sand. I hate walking through that sand. You know, really, the only, I mean, it takes work to make sure you don't turn, come, go there white and come back red. I mean, that is work. The only thing I really like to do is I like to get in the water. But even that's work, especially when the current's going. Man, I'm trying to stand still and just have a good time. But I'm over here having to fight the waves to stay in line of where I am at. But that's the image that we see. So we are passively being conformed by the world. We are passively being conformed to the patterns of this world. It's like me going 
and hopping in an inner tube, and I'm just sitting there floating, right? And I'm just going to lay back and just relax. I'm going to get a tan. And I, I close my eyes for, you know, a minute, but, then, you know, you know that turns out. Five minutes go by. And when I come back to reality, I am either surrounded by sharks in the middle of the gulf, or I can't even see where I was. Man, it's because, it's because, you know, we're not doing anything while we're in that inner tube. We're just relaxing, but we are moving. Right now, you are either passively being transformed by the renewal of your mind, or you are being conformed to the patterns of this world. There is no middle ground. Either one or the other. And here's the thing. What we like to do is we like to, we think that our spiritual, our past spiritual victories, like, man, I'm just, man, I'm on high right now. Man, God's been so good to me. Man, everything's been going on. We, we like to think that those past spiritual victories allots us time to just rest, to relax. And so we lay down and we start to relax. And guess what? When you come back to reality, you are farther away from God than when you were before. Because it's done by an exterior force. It's also done by an interior drive. It's done by an interior drive. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I mean, praise God that God is transforming us. And you know how God transforms us? He transforms us through the renewing of our minds by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read this text by itself, you will see that nowhere in this text do you see the Holy Spirit. But that's why I asked Savannah to read Titus chapter 3, verse 5 this morning. Look at Titus 3, verse 5. He says, He saved us, not on a basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. This word renewal is only used two times in Scripture, and here's the other one. But by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the only two times that this word for renewal is used in the Bible, one time is in Romans chapter 12, and the other time is when Paul is describing the work that the Holy Spirit does. I mean, the Holy Spirit externally transforms us, but it's done by an interior drive also. You know, you remember the old song, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I can't sing, sorry. Most of it is like my, my throat is very dry because you're all looking at me. But you know the song, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. You see, the, we are passively being conformed and passively being transformed, but you can help one or the other. You know, if you go home, here's the thing, if you are captivated by the glory of God and you offer your lives on the altar, but then you go home and you put garbage in your eyes and garbage in your ears and you put garbage, you use your hands to do just garbage, guess what? You are helping the conforming of your minds. You are helping one or the other. I mean, remember the beach. You know, I just go to the beach and I lay down, right? I'm just laying in the tube. But there's this force that has moved me one way or the other. I can either, you know, I can either kind of, you know, stay a little conscious and make sure I'm not going too far, or I can just like casually, you know, sometimes you ever just get in there and you just start flapping your hands just because it's nice. I mean, you are helping that current move you. And just like that, you are helping 
either the world to conform you or you're helping the Spirit transform you. You did not save yourself and you cannot transform yourself, but you can help it. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I mean, when the Spirit is transforming you, walk with it. When the Spirit is transforming you, let that be what drives you. You know, if when you are captivated by the glory of God, when you are captured, when it captures your heart, what is your natural instinct to do when it captures it? I know mine is so many times I like to, I want to fight it. I want to fight it because here's the thing. When God captures your heart, you are not going to be the same person. You are going to leave differently. But here's the thing. When you are captured by the glory of God and when you offer your bodies on the altar, walk with the Spirit. Walk with it. Run with it. Stay by it. And so, worship that keeps the sacrifice down. It's worship that is captivated by the glory of God. It's worship that requires a costly offering. It's worship that transfigures and not configures. And lastly, it's worship that results in consecrating yourselves to a service. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual, your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, what do y'all see, what do y'all see here in verse two? What what catches your eyes? What's what's this one term that Dr. Allen has like hammered into Grace Church? Purpose clause. There's a purpose clause here. Man, isn't it beautiful? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed so that you may know what the will of God is. Man, that's beautiful. So, man, we go our whole lives. One of the biggest things we try to do is we try to figure out what is God's will for your life and my life. Do you want to know God's will? I mean, do you desire that? Well, then do not be conformed, but be transformed. I mean, Paul, and here's the thing. We read this and we like to think, okay, Paul is talking about God's will for my life. God is, is, has a scope on my heart, and he's saying, this is God's will for Caleb's life. But that's not what he's doing here. What Paul is doing is Paul is laying out the general will of God. What is God's general will? But here's the thing. When you know God's general will, you're going to know God's specific will. Because the more you know God, the more you're going to know about yourself. You know, one of my favorite quotes by David Platt is this. 
He's talking about the will of God. And this is what he says. But what if God's will was never, never intended to be found? In fact, what if it was never hidden from us in the first place? What if God the Father has not sent His children on a cosmic Easter egg hunt to discover His will while He sits back in heaven saying, You're getting colder. Oh, oh, warmer. Hot. You're on fire. You know, what if he's, He doesn't do that? And what if, what if searching for God's will like this actually misses the entire point of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Isn't that what we do? We like to... We like to do the old Bible method like, God, what's your will? And we point our finger and we end up in song songs. So many times we like to go and we like to say, God, what is your will for my life? I'm not going to do any, I'm not going to move until I find out. All the while we're being conformed to look more like the world. I mean, God's word is not hidden. His word is, his will for our lives is plainly written on the pages of scripture. God's will is for you to look more like Jesus and less like the world. You want to know God's will for your life? Then know God. You want to know God's specific will for your life? Then know God. If you do not know God, you will not know His will. If you are being conformed, you're not going to know His will. You see, when we offer our lives on the altar, and and when, when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds... We're going to be able to prove what the will of God is. And like we said, His will is not hidden from us. We're not on an Easter egg hunt. I mean, if you read the Bible, he, it's like it's on a jumbotron for His people. If only we search, if only we look in the Scriptures. You want to hear God speak? Read the Bible out loud. And see, you know the problem with the living sacrifice? Is a living sacrifice can crawl off the altar. You know, so many times we go and we are captivated by the glory of God and we lay our lives on the altar, but then we are, because we take that break, we are then enticed by the, by the world and we slowly crawl off that altar. God does not intend for us to just lay on the altar and neutralize. But rather, He intends for us to give our lives, making His name known among the nations. Whether it's in India, Brazil, Bonifay. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable of God, which is your reasonable which is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to test what the will of God is, that which is good and perfect and acceptable. You know, you know the problem with the living sacrifice? We can crawl at the altar. It can leave and it can walk away. But when you have tasted and seen that the Lord's mercies is good, man, that is worship that can keep a sacrifice down. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you right now. Lord, just humbled by your word. Lord, all we can say in in view of your mercies is, Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, we we are nothing but dust 
But Father, you have called us. You've chosen us before the foundation of the world to be conformed into the image of your Son. So Father, I pray today, Lord, that as we continue our worship, Lord, let it not end. As we continue our worship through this week, Lord, that our worship will be countercultural. Lord, that our worship will be logical. Lord, and that our worship will be captivated by the glory of God. Lord, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.